0: Uh, We are studying the the Gospel of John, and today we're beginning chapter 15. We got into it a little bit, but I want to start again because we just got started in our study of that chapter. This, a couple of just key framework points, this is part of the, what is called the upper room discourse, where Jesus is in the upper room. Uh, They have completed the Passover meal and all that, and he's teaching his disciples, and that's why These chapters, 14, 15, and 16, are quite unique. You do not see them in any of the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. So this is rich material. And as I said last time, and I think I threw up a slide uh, at least once, but this is uh, the new order. This is the new covenant. He's going over the new covenant blessings that are part of being in Christ. Uh, Prayer life is affected. Uh, my my peace, my love, my joy, and we're going to see here in just a minute my friend uh, Jesus ca- uses to characterize it's coming the Holy Spirit. I mean all of these things are part of the new order. Now chapter fifteen, uh, the Lord uses an analogy of a vine, and this would be a grapevine and the branches of the grapevine to describe. The relationship of the Christ follower, the person who has put their faith in him, with, with him, and the, the Heavenly Father. So I am the true vine, and my Father is the wine dresser. And that uh, is a quite profound statement. Let me make one textual observation. This is the last time in the Gospel of John that Jesus will say, I am. So um, this, again, we've looked at that before, just to remind you how central those I am statements, ego me. it takes you back to Exodus 3.14. But here, what the Lord Jesus is doing is he's using an analogy which would be very, very familiar to the people who heard him speak this, less so to us, but a vineyard they're often uh, referred to in the Old Testament references as the vineyard songs. Most of them are in Isaiah that just describe the relationship between Israel and Yahweh, God, uh, as a vine, and they are the vine, and the Father, the Heavenly Father, God, is the vine dresser. So Jesus is picking up on that. But when he says, I am the vine, and my Father is the vine dresser, He is the main trunk, the vine. And then he says, every branch in me. That little prepositional phrase, in me, is very, very important. So there already is a relationship between the Lord Jesus and the branches. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. I don't believe that's a very good translation. I'm reading from the ESV translation. It's better, I think, to understand that every branch that does not bear meat, he lifts up and every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes. Uh, vines, particularly grape vines, we're talking about, vines that would produce wine in, in the context of the first century, but if they're on the ground, they're going to rot more quickly, they're going to absorb more moisture, this isn't good, so you lift them up and then prune those that are either too low or not bearing fruit. So again, the importance of this is this prepositional phrase, in me. There is already a relationship with him. What does the Father do to the branches that are tied to the key vine, the key trunk of the vine? What does he do? Well, he lifts them up so that they will be healthy and produce fruit, and he prunes those parts of the branches that are not bearing fruit. So in my view, and my understanding of this, we are to understand this as positive in terms of the intended purpose. End of verse 2, that it may bear more fruit. So the Heavenly Father is the vine dresser. Jesus is the main trunk, the main vine. We are the branches, and the Father lifts up the branches so that they will be healthy to produce fruit, and he prunes the part that is not bearing fruit. So this is this is the way in which the heavenly father works in our lives. And he says as Jesus is continuing now already you are clean. That is a reference to our position in Christ. This is positional truth. Already you are clean. You put your faith in me. You I'm going to use the words that the apostle Paul uses you are justified your position is secure. This is positional truth. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. So again, verses 1, 2, and 3 is describing this new covenant relationship with the Lord Jesus and the Heavenly Father using the analogy of a vine and the vine dresser the, and the branches. What is that relationship look like? It is always, that relationship is always geared toward producing more spiritual fruit. Your position is secure. You are clean because you have put your faith in me. Now, verse 4, what does that healthy spiritual life that has been lifted up, has been pruned of the junk and the waste, That does not help produce fruit, but yields more spiritual fruit. What does it look like? Now, there is a phrase that begins verse 4, that you need a circle, underline, use your yellow highlighter, use 17 exclamation points. Abide in me. You really ought to circle that. That is a key phrase in this chapter. And it actually comes up in Paul's epistles. Uh, a number of times, abide in me. Now, Now, what does that mean? Well, if you think of the analogy of a vine, the main trunk, and the branches, a branch has absolutely no life of its own. You can't cut off a branch and expect it to produce any fruit. It's going to die. So what you're looking for is the vital, robust growth that comes from drawing all your strength and power and enablement from the main branch, excuse me, the main vine, the main trunk. So to abide in Jesus, and that is, again, that is a critically important phrase in this chapter, means a daily, intimate relationship of trust, a relationship of, of obedience to Him, an obedience of love, an obedience of dependence. So, I mean, it, it's it's a life that is, is characterized by all of the terms and phrases we use from studying the epistles of Paul, from studying the words of Jesus. It is a life of utter dependence on him. And in light, and he's going to bring this up, in light of the Holy Spirit who indwells us, drawing on him and being under his control is a part of abiding in Christ.
1: So... Again, and another easily. way another way to say that might be that we are connected, right? Yes. Yes. Right.
0: And and we draw in that connection, we draw our spiritual power, our spiritual enablement, our our uh, our energy, so to speak, from Jesus through his holy spirit who dwells us. So the whole idea of abiding completely completely divorces any idea of I'm a lone ranger, I'm autonomous, I'm a rugged individualist. No, you're not. Spiritually speaking, you are linked to Jesus and you must draw on all of his spiritual power and able to do what he wants you to do. And so, it again, this whole idea of abiding was quite crucial to Jesus because he's going to say it over and over again, is a description of the person so it's put your faith in Christ, positionally they're secure, to use the words of verse 3, they're clean, but now your life, the life, and you, you're familiar with this because we've talked about it a lot, of sanctification, the process of sanctification is not an autonomous individual doing what is right in your own eyes, to use that statement from the book of Judges, but right now a dependent individual, a disciple, is by definition someone dependent on the master. So our dependence now is characterized by a branch drawing all of its strength from the main trunk of the vine. And so Jesus is just saying the same thing metaphorically and figuratively in an analogy, and now stating very clearly, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me and he repeats again, I am the vine, you are the branches. Now, as you know, good teachers keep repeating the same thing over and over again, so that the students eventually get it. So he keeps saying this, whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. (laughs) So I mean, he just keeps saying the same thing over and over again, with variations, little twists, but the whole point: don't expect to be able to pull off the Christian life as an autonomous individual doing what is right in your own eyes. You'll never do it. You'll never make it. The key, to, the key to the Christian life, is a life of dependence on Jesus through His Holy Jim. Spirit who indwells you. And so that abiding but, is the key to the spiritual
1: life that He's calling us to. Somebody, hey, Jim I have a question for you. Uh, can you put uh, what that looks like abiding as far as what we do in our daily life? It it has to come down to a practical application of how we do this abiding. Uh, and how are, I mean, we've referred to it a couple of times, but I think at this, because we're stressing this so much, what does that look like? What What do we do As believers in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, wanting to live our lives for Him, what do we do?
0: Well, uh, I'm happy to answer that. Part of my tension here is I don't want to put this at the level of just performing and going through a whole bunch of exercises.
1: No, no, no. It becomes a legalist
0: handbook where you do this, do this, do this, and everything will be fine. Uh, So I always. I always resist. I always resist that a bit, but certainly
1: what I'm focusing on is as we as we are reading the scripture, as we're praying, uh, as we go about our lives. How do we strengthen this abiding? Not not by a checklist thing, but by a matter of practical everyday living.
0: Well, I do think, and you said it. I do think. If we're going to abide in Christ and draw on the strength and power of Christ through his Holy Spirit, obviously it means you are going to spend time in the Word of God, which is his revelation to humanity. I mean, it's inconceivable to me how you could think of abiding without spending time in God's Word. How much yeah. you spend, when you do it, you know, that, that is a matter of freedom. Yeah. That is a matter of liberty. But to not do it doesn't make sense. And secondly, yeah. we've talked a lot about this in the class over the years. This conversational prayer—not only where you're—you mm-hmm. you're, you might have like a prayer list that you pray in the morning or before you go to bed or something like that—but that is extremely important. But it also is this conversational prayer where you're talking to Jesus all the time. You're bringing him mm-hmm. into everything mm-hmm. that you do. Paul writes in First Corinthians—I'm sorry, First Thessalonians, chapter five oh, the end of the chapter, somewhere around verse 17 or something like that. But he says, pray without ceasing. Well,
2: mm-hmm. the only way
0: that means anything, because pray without ceasing sounds so wonderful and spiritual, but what does that really mean? It's a conversational prayer. You're mm-hmm. just talking to mm-hmm. the Lord. He is your Savior. He's your mm-hmm. Master. He's your Lord. But as we're going to read here in just a couple of seconds, He's also our friend. And so that means yeah. you have an intimacy and a robust vitality in that intimacy, where you can talk to him about anything. And then thirdly, it's it is important, it is important to fellowship, spend time with other Christians. Now we're not in a holy bubble where we never see anyone that's not a Christian, but that you you need that. You need that relationship, that mutual encouragement and, and mutual. You know, the book of Hebrews talks about it as stimulating one another to love and good deeds. But we need each other. And I believe Mm -hmm. as men, um, I mean, I've set up dozens of these in my life when I was in the higher ed ministry as well as in church ministry. But I call them accountability groups where men Mm -hmm. need to be accountable to one another. And there are a series of Mm -hmm. questions that we should have the freedom to ask one another if we're in that, kind of a, in that kind of a relationship. So there are at least two or three things that I think are, are important to abide in the Lord. This is not a once-in-my-lifetime thing I do. Abiding no. is daily, hourly. It, it is a continual, but it's, it's not out of fear of God. It is because mm-hmm. I love Him, and I take very seriously what He is counseling me to do here. And it is, again, we've seen it now three times Jesus has said, the intended purpose here of this abiding relationship is that you will bear much fruit. Yes, We're going to be talking about that in just a minute. And it certainly mm-hmm. means the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians five twenty two and 23, love, joy, peace, patience, those nine quality traits. But it also means the fruit of, of spiritual ministry. How do you respond to those divine appointments God sent, what Erwin McManus calls those Mm -hmm. divine appointments that God sends across your path? People, Mm -hmm. uh, individuals, a phone call, an email, I mean, whatever it is. And then your involvement in some kind of ministry, in your church or whatever. I mean, your life is being transformed. And that's the whole point of sanctification. Your life is being transformed. But the key to that ongoing transformation is what the Lord Jesus Christ is talking about in this chapter. This is one of the most important chapters in the Bible on the victorious life over sin that God is calling us to in his Son, the Lord Jesus. And again, if you look at the end of verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, what he means there, I mean, you know, you can... You can go out and pick up the garbage can, go out and cut your grass. I mean, that's, he's, not only, he's not talking about necessarily, but he's talking about the things that are eternally significant, the things that are important to him. But it is true in all of our lives. When you are dependent on Jesus, everything you do takes on a whole new meaning and a whole new perspective and outlook on things. Mm-hmm. I now yeah. do everything to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10.31. I can't do everything to the glory of God if I'm not abiding in Jesus. If I'm mm-hmm. not abiding in Jesus, I'm doing everything out of selfish, self-centered, self-indulgent motives, which ultimately becomes destructive to the at the All bottom. Right. Okay, verse 8, oh, if anyone does not abide in... excuse me if anyone does not abide in me he's thrown away like that's a simile like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned now we have to be very careful here i would put verse uh verse Uh, 6, I think I said 8, I meant 6. I would put verse 6 in the context of what the Apostle Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15, which years ago we studied that when we were going through 1 Corinthians. But he's talking here about fire, which he talks about thrown into the fire and burned. He's talking about the cleansing, purifying work of the Heavenly Father, who lifts up and prunes, those things that he prunes, those things are worthless. They're like the wood, hay, and stubble that the Apostle Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And so it is is this, if we are not abiding in Christ, now I'm going to introduce a word here, it's not a very nice word to think about, but if we're not interested in abiding in Christ, he will discipline us. He he will get get rid of the junk in our life so that we're focusing on him and the importance and necessity and wondrous results of abiding in him. So verse six should be understood in the context of this person who is in Christ, back to verse two, but who is not abiding. What does the heavenly father do And so you you see this strong disciplinary hand of the Heavenly Father to accomplish his purposes. And so fire is that cleansing, purifying agent that is just throughout the scriptures. It's just all over the place in terms of the believer's life. Now for the unbeliever, fire is that metaphor of judgment, which is what occurs at the end of time, at the great white throne judgment. But again, I'm getting a little bit beyond this verse. So the Lord just keeps saying the importance of abiding, and if you're not abiding, the Heavenly Father disciplines. The Heavenly Father gets rid of all the junk, so that you are willing to abide. And so that then begins in verse 7, what I call the four results of abiding, the four intended result of abiding in Christ. Result number one is verse seven. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. So our prayer life changes. And as we talked earlier, and I was responding, I think, to Fred's question, but our prayer life becomes really an important dynamic, in fact, maybe the dynamic center of an abiding life. Our prayer life changes. Whatever you wish, it will be done for you. And, you know, this isn't the selfish, self-centered prayers. It's the, the abiding prayer. I can do nothing without Christ. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So our prayer life is lining up with the priorities, with, with, the, with the directives, with the, the, the primary things of interest to our Lord Jesus. It's not a selfish prayer life. It's a prayer life that is a consequence of abiding in Jesus. Our prayer life changes. Number two, by this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciple as the Father loved me, well, let me stop there. So that second result is the Heavenly Father is glorified by what we do, by how we live our lives. It's the evidence that we are walking in loving obedience with Jesus. And that's really, you bear much fruit and prove to me my disciples. That's what Jesus has said over and over again. If you love me, keep my commandments. Or even more correctly, it's a first-class condition, since you love me, keep my commandments. And the Father's glorified by this. I want to, I want to, again, I quoted this earlier. I want to draw your attention to 1 Corinthians 10 31. An abiding believer seeks to do everything in their life to the glory of God. Watch what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 31. Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, do all to the glory of God. The glory of God pleasing and bringing glory and honor to our Heavenly Father is now one of our primary motivations. A selfish, self-centered, self-indulgent sinner doesn't want to do that. But a, a, a person who has put their faith in Christ and is being transformed by Christ through his Spirit, who is learning what it means to abide in Jesus, will seek to do everything to bring glory and honor to the Lord. And that becomes a question we can ask ourselves. I'm considering doing this. Is this honoring to the Lord? I'm considering this opportunity. Will this bring glory to the Lord? And I mean, that's not necessarily an easy question to always answer, but it now becomes a primary motivator for us. We're no longer thinking just of self, we're thinking about what we do. Will this be honoring and bring glory to the Lord? That's a very appropriate question to ask ourselves. Thirdly, As my Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. So the third result, and Jesus has talked about this before, we enter this circle of love. Jesus Jesus loves, abides, and obeys his heavenly Father. We love, abide, and obey the Lord Jesus and the heavenly Father. So who is our model? And that's exactly how verse 9 is structured. Who's our model for loving? Jesus? Jesus loves, abides, and obeys his Father. You and I love, abide, and obey Jesus, and thereby the Heavenly Father. So this, this extraordinary, intimate relationship between the Heavenly Father and God the Son characterizes our relationship with Jesus. As Jesus, I'll say it again, as Jesus loves, abides, and obeys the Heavenly Father, we love, abide, and obey Jesus. So Jesus sets up the pattern, the model for us to follow, which is really quite extraordinary. Then the fourth result If you keep my commandments, again, first-class condition, since you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, and here's the fourth intended result of abiding, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And so that fourth result is the joy of the Lord. His joy now abides in us. And it's a joy that his intent is that it be full. And so this, this, again, this fantastic analogy, as Jesus does the Father's will, as Jesus abides in the Father, as Jesus obeys the Father, he experiences, this is Jesus, that joy. Now we, as we abide, love, and obey Jesus, one of the intended results of that is we experience his joy. And joy is one of those biblical terms. You see it in the listing of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. It's really a hard term to define. Because genuine biblical, Christ-centered, supernaturally enabled joy is not the equivalent of happiness. I would argue quite strongly, actually, that happiness and joy are not synonyms when it comes to Scripture. Because joy is that response to the things in life that result from our love relationship with Jesus, where we see things, respond to things the way he does. So his joy becomes our joy. So let me ask you a couple of hypothetical questions. Could, could, genuinely biblical, could genuine biblical joy that's centered and resulting from a relationship with Christ be exhibited when tears are streaming down your face. And you are dealing with a a traumatic, traumatic development in your life that you did not expect. Can there still be joy in the midst of of grieving, of hurt Mm -hmm. that you can't explain? It's inexplicable? Mm -hmm. Yes. In that, in that sense, because my eyes and my focus is not on my circumstances. My focus is on God, and I trust him. In the book of Nehemiah, which we studied a couple of months, well, know, a year ago, whenever we studied it, but a while ago, you remember Nehemiah said in, in chapter 8 to the people at that fantastic revival, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And that was in the midst of them trying to build the wall and all the opposition and everybody's out to destroy them. They've got their spear in one hand and their trowel in the next. And I mean, all of that, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And now I'm telling you, man, that is a very easy thing for me to say on this incredibly summer day at the beginning of October. But it is the reality of the calling that God has upon our lives as his people to exhibit his joy and that's supernatural you cannot you cannot experience in its full in its utter fulfillment what Christ says there at the end of verse 11 on your own that is a supernatural character trait that the holy spirit produces love joy peace think of galatians 5:22 but jesus is saying that one of the results of abiding in me that life of dependence, of trust, of, of, of yieldingness to him is a life that produces joy. Where you have that supernatural enablement to rise above the circumstances and keep your focus on Jesus. Again, that is very easy for me to utter those words. To live that is part of the challenge that the Lord Jesus is laying down. Is that what you want? Yes, Lord, it is. Abide in me. Is that that what you like to characterize your life? Yes, it is, Lord. Abide in me. That's what Jesus is saying. So let's review this again. There are four results of abiding in Jesus. It affects your prayer life. You now do all things to the glory of the Lord. You now have that love relationship with the Father and Son. As Jesus loves, abides, and obeys the Father, we love, abide, and obey Jesus. And the fourth result is the joy of the Lord. And so this this quite marvelous description of the transformed life. This this unbelievably robust, spiritually vital life that is available to the followers of Christ who desire to abide in Christ. And so that's why this passage, uh, this chapter really, all of chapter 15, is such a critical chapter us to understand what the Lord doing in our lives now. We've come to faith. We put our trust in him. Chapter 15 is a nice chapter to begin to understand, okay, now what's next? I've made the decision. What's next? Now my goal is to allow my life to abide in Christ's, And he begins to describe what that looks like. Now, we're not done, but let me stop here and see if you have any additional questions.
1: I I do have another question on a glorified. Um, Jim, um, if there's no one there to see it, but we have done something that God wants us to do, then God is glorified in that, even though we don't have bystanders or anyone there, to actually witness uh, what we have done to glorify God, would that be sure, appropriate? Sure. That the, it's an absolute standard that God has, regardless of any audience or witnesses or anything like that. It, it's and it and it strengthens us internally because we know and we sense He's glorified in us. That's right. I mean. Uh, the glory of
0: God in our lives is not measured by how many people applaud when we do something. The glory of God is manifested in our satisfaction that we're doing what the Lord is wanting us to do, whether anybody knows about it or not. And that's why, again, I mean, I practically speaking, and I've used this with a lot of young guys, this becomes an important check for you. What I'm considering doing, will this bring glory to the Lord? Will this be honoring to the Lord? And I mean, sometimes it's so obvious. No, it's not. But sometimes you're a little bit unsettled. And maybe the best thing is maybe don't do it or put it on hold or seek some additional counsel or seek some additional insight from God's word, from other believers, because you do now want to live your life in such a way where it is consistently honoring and bringing glory to the Lord. You know, the Westminster Catechism, the very first article says, what is the chief end of man? To love God and glorify, you know, to glorify him in everything we do. And so you have this this magnificent challenge that I'm no longer living my life to please myself. I'm now living my life to please my Heavenly Father who sent his Son, who has given me salvation, and I'm indwelt by his Spirit who now gives me the power as I seek to abide in him. And so it, it, it changes the whole framework and motivation of what we do when we do what we do. And whether anybody's watching or not, one person is watching. The Lord is watching. And it's important to seek to please him in all we do. Thanks, Jim. I would really encourage you guys, uh, and you know, obviously I don't know all you do in terms of your spiritual life, But to just think through these four results, which we've just gone over, and this this is your life now. You are being transformed into the image of of, of Christ, and this this means that now I have a whole new agenda for my life. I have a whole new set of priorities for my life, and these four intended results of abiding in Christ is a good place to start. And as Woody, I know Woody loves this because he's so spot on. Sanctification is a process, and these four results are a part of a process that the Lord is is accomplishing in our life. Now, moving on then, verse 12 through 17, verse 12 through 17, are four dynamic characteristics of the abiding life, not results but characteristics of the abiding life. So let's look at these now. This is my commandment that you love one another. Now he has said this over and over again. So this isn't new, but notice this as I have loved you. So when you see the command, uh, my commandment is that you love one another. What's the standard as Jesus has loved us. Okay, what did Jesus do for us that showed his love? He went to the cross. He died for us. And so Jesus, that, that's, that, this, isn't, this isn't intimidating. This is challenging us. The standard of love, in Greek, it's agape. The standard of love is Christ. How does Christ love? Ah, that's my standard. Jesus, John 13, washed the disciples' feet because he loved them. Jesus went to the cross for you and me because he loved us. What is John three sixteen? for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. So the measure of God's love for us is what he's given to us, what he's done for us. And so Jesus, it's quite important that you see that structure of this sentence. The standard for loving one another is Jesus' love for us. Greater love has no man than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Well, that's certainly true. I mean, that's the most magnanimous thing you can do in expressing love, is to, to lay down your life for somebody in an incredible, cr- critically life-threatening situation. You know, the Marines that are fighting in World War II, and a grenade is thrown, and one of the men jumps on that grenade to save the others in his, in his uh, patrol. Now, that's extreme, but that's the idea that Christ has. Verse 14, you are my friends. Now, look at that. Greater love has no man than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Verse 14, you are my friends. Now, I'm sure you've heard of that before. I'm I'm sure this isn't the first time you've ever come across that Jesus calls us his friends. But men... (laughs) Think of who's uttering these words, the omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, eternal, immutable, second person of the Trinity calling us his friend. There are only two key people in the Bible who are called the friends of God before this verse, Abraham and Moses. There aren't any other people in the Bible up to this point that are called friends of God until Jesus says the greatest example of love is to lay down your life for your friend. Verse 14, you are my friend. So this expression of intimacy with the Lord Jesus is now characterized by this tremendous word of friend a privilege, an honor, to be called by God his friend. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. All of the attributes of God are his because God is one essence of three persons who differ relationally and functionally. So here is that God who created everything of awesome, unimaginable power, saying, you're my friend. I really believe that the love that the Father, Son, and Spirit had for all eternity was one of the reasons why they created. They created human beings as as their image bearers, and the Trinitarian God did that to have intimacy and fellowship with the image bearers, such that he calls them friends. And what was lost in Adam when he and Eve sinned, Genesis 3, is restored in Christ. That intimacy with Adam and Eve had with Christ, with God, where they could walk in the garden with him, tell him everything they were doing that day, share with him everything they were doing was lost because of sin. Jesus restores that such that all of those who put their faith in him, he now calls friends since you do what I commanded you. And so you see, friendship results in obedience. Friendship with Jesus results in obedience. Now think of, but think of what comes first. Because you are my friend, and I'm declaring that you're my friend, that again is one of the motivations for you to walk in loving obedience with me. The motivating factor of our obedience is not the sort of Damocles hanging over our head, that God is going to strike us dead if we don't obey him. That's, that's the pagan view of God. That's the Greco-Roman view of their many, many gods. That's the Egyptian view of their gods in the ancient world. That's the Babylonian view of their god Marduk. That's not your view of God. Jesus loves us so much that he paid the price for us, died for us, such that we are now his friends and we put our faith in him. And that becomes the motivator. Why do I want to obey the Lord? Because I love him. That changes the whole dynamic. This isn't a coerced love. I study under a man, it's horrible, but you get his point. He used to say, God is not the cosmic rapist of the universe. He doesn't force us to love him. He doesn't coerce us into love he wants us to choose but he's done everything for us and the response to what he's done for us as we embrace him by faith and he now calls us his friends is lord i want to please you i want to obey you i want to do what you're asking me to do because you've given me everything to do it you've given me your spirit you give me your word you have given me the opportunity to talk to you you've given me friends who are believers so Jesus expands on it, verse 15, no longer do I call you servants, the term there is doulos, bond servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So a second characteristic of abiding in the Lord Jesus is not only he now is your friend. But secondly, from what verse 15 explains, we're privileged, we're informed. What the Father has made known to the Son, the Son makes known to us. We're informed of the the heavenly perspective, of God's perspective on things, And we're privileged because we now have his word and because we have his Holy Spirit, there is this opportunity to understand and welcome and embrace the truths of God's word. The unbeliever, this is what Paul's arguing in 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16, the unbeliever cannot understand, cannot embrace, cannot welcome the truth because they don't have the Holy Spirit, but you do. And so we're able to understand the perspective that God has because Jesus is revealing it to us through his Holy Spirit who indwells us. Number three, no pride. The second, third characteristic, excuse me, third characteristic is no pride. You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit that your fruit should abide. In other words, what Jesus is saying in verse 16 is don't be puffed up. Wow, look at how spiritually wonderful I am. We got to remember that it is the Lord Jesus. Now this gets into election and all that, which right now I don't want to get into. It's this important privilege that he has chosen us. Uh, We did not choose him, but he chose us and appointed us. I'm, I'm using us instead of you. That we should go and bear fruit and our fruit should abide. And so, again, this is the whole corpus of chapter 15 in one sentence. We are called to abide in the Lord Jesus, to produce the fruit that that abiding yields, because pride has no place in an abiding relationship. The opposite of pride is humility, and the evidence of humility is dependence. And that's what abiding means. So there's no no characteristic haughtiness of arrogance, of pride, of what the Greeks called hubris in an abiding person's life. No place for it. And that is perhaps one of the reasons why in the Old Testament we see declared God hates pride. And then finally, the final characteristic is verse 17. These things I command you. I'm sorry, I, I, I skipped this. So the end result, verse 16, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things that command you, so that you may love one another. So the fourth characteristic, again, is a transformed prayer life. But the key phrase in verse six, end of verse 16 is, in my name. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Now, in my name, with the authority, with the blessing of Jesus. That's why we, we often end our prayers, I don't know how you are, but often we end our prayers by saying something like, in Jesus' name. This is where this comes from. We end our prayers in Jesus' name. We're approaching the Heavenly Father with our praise, with our adoration, with our confession, with our statements of thanksgiving, and with our requests, our supplications, in the name of Jesus, with his authority, because of our relationship with him, we have access to the Father, and Jesus is saying your your prayer life, your prayer life is characterized now by also a prayer life of dependence, because you're going to the Father in My name. You have a right to do that. You have a privilege to do that. Do it. And again, He repeats this community of love, so that you love one another. Which is He started this paragraph with that. So, up through verse 17, then you have the the description of abiding you have the four results of abiding you have the four integrated characteristics of abiding of abiding so let's review those four integrated characteristics number 1 we're now the friend of Jesus number 2 we're an informed and privileged group of people the father has given truth to the son the son gives it to us It is his Holy Spirit that enables us to understand and gain the perspective of God on all things, 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16. No pride in that relationship of abiding. And finally, an altered transformed prayer life. We can approach the Heavenly Father in the name, with the authority, based on the relationship of abiding in Jesus, and he will answer our prayers. Another way of saying this, quite significant, is God answers prayer. You can have that absolute certainty. He hears and he answers. He responds. He'll give it to you. And so you again, this this is really an important section, John chapter 15, 1 through 17, on one of the most important characteristics, one of the most important dynamic centers of the sanctified life abiding in jesus if i had authority i would assign you a very large thought paper on this but since i don't have the authority and you wouldn't do it even if i ask you to do it that's all right but it's really important i hope this was helpful to you man this is really an important passage to me personally as well as in terms of what the christian life that's being transformed can look like any question before we move on yes
2: um, I have
1: one too, Jim, when he's done.
2: Okay, Russ, go ahead. Um, in uh, verse 15, one of the things that I sometimes come up against is the uh, the the argument of scope. Okay. Argument of what? Scope. Um range, scope. Um, that okay, this sure. that Here. this they he's in the upper room. This applies to his disciples, it doesn't apply to the rest of us. So it's Abraham, Moses and these 12 guys only, not to the rest of us. Could you um, uh, help me to uh, <laughs> correct people who have that that viewpoint of this passage? Well,
0: <laughs> oh my, if, if that is a perspective that someone takes, then probably they they don't look at anything in the New Testament as applicable to them. It's only applicable to the original 12. Uh-huh. Um, that's um, of course that's not a terribly helpful way to look at Scripture. Uh-huh. I think one of the things to uh, one of the things to think about here, Russ, is just to, to think through the use in the New Testament of the term disciple. Uh-huh. Now, disciple can mean the original twelve, who then eventually become known as apostles. But Jesus will talk. He he has a number of discourses on that. To be a disciple of Jesus is not a reference only to the 12. It's to anyone who's put their faith in him and now wants to walk with him. Because a disciple is someone who learns from the master. And so in Matthew chapter 28, what does the command, it's called the Great Commission, what does the command of Jesus? Mm-hmm. Make disciples. How do you make disciples? By going, baptizing, and teaching all that I've commanded unto you. What is all that I commanded unto you involved? John chapter 15. This is addressed to disciples, not just to the original 12, because he makes promises and and lays down important declarative sentences in the upper room discourse that apply to all disciples of Jesus. When Jesus says in John 14, I'm coming back for you, he doesn't only mean the 12. He means everybody that's put their faith in him. I'm preparing a place for you. I'm coming back for you. Where I am, you're going to be with me forever. So I mean, does that help Russ? I mean, it's yep. it's keying yeah, I, in on I'm, that term disciple and then seeing that's the command of
2: the church. Make disciples. Yeah, I'm looking for that relationship and how to vector somebody um, to that because yep. obviously he's speaking in the broader context of, you know, Absolutely. you and he does it in several other places. I just wanted to get your additional perspective that's, on that
0: that's how and i have been asked that before so that that i think is the right way to look at it from scripture very good good question what do you. you had a question
1: uh, yes jim i just well it was not a question i just wanted sure. to tell you that um uh, that uh i kind of feel like i was eavesdropping on jesus when he was <laughs> instructing the, the uh, disciples uh yeah his, uh, um, before he left then that's you right. know, And uh and I kind of and you've explained it very well uh and, and uh and it meant a lot to me okay
0: praise Thanks. the lord good that's a good i like how you put that eavesdropping in a way that's true we are eavesdropping on the last words of Jesus to his disciples and that of course is one of the wonderful privileges of scripture so yeah that's good that's good. All right, let's see what time is it. I don't know if we'll get this finished. But verse, uh, as we finish chapter 15, starting at verse 18, I want you to see the structure of this. It's quite important. Part one of the structure 18 through, there's a warning. And that warning is verse 18 through 24, or 25 actually. And then verse 26 and 27 is a word of comfort so the the warning is followed by comfort, but the warning is now look guys, I'm sending you out, and I've talked about this before, and we'll see this when we get to chapter seventeen and what we call the high priestly prayer of Jesus. He said this but he's going to say if the world hates you, and again this is first class condition, so it's since the world hates you, know that I that it has hated me before it hated you. So uh, that is not a particularly profound statement, but yet it's an important statement. It's almost like Jesus is saying, and this is kind of what he will repeat in the high priestly prayer to the, to the father in chapter 17, as the world has hated me, it's going to hate you. And remember, world there, and and Jesus uses it that way. The Gospel of John uses it that way. The book of Revelation uses it that way. World is that system, that system that is in rebellion against Jesus over which Satan rules. The Bible also calls it the kingdom of darkness. So since the kingdom of darkness hates you, remember it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Again, always keep in mind what world means. But that little phrase, not of the world, that's something you ought to circle. That's something you need to think about. Are you of the world? Remember, what world means. That system that stands opposed to and is rebellion against Jesus over which Satan rules. The Bible calls it the kingdom of darkness. Jesus will pray in the uh, uh, John chapter 17. As I am not of the world, they are not of the world, but I'm sending them into the world. And so we are not of the world. What does that mean? We no longer buy the values, virtues, and standards of the world we are citizens of a new kingdom. We have a new king, and his values, his virtues, his standards are now our values, virtues, and standards. And that's why Paul says in Colossians 1, um, I believe it's about verse 13, that the heavenly father has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. We are now We have renounced our citizenship in the darkness kingdom. We have affirmed our citizenship in the kingdom of the dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are no longer of that world system. And because he has chosen us out of that world system, therefore it hates us. Now, to me, you know, 35 years ago, I would say, you know, I can conceptually understand that. But now in 2020, I really understand that, because the United States of America epitomizes a nation in rebellion against God. Its values, its virtues, and its standards are not God's. When you read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 34, you see that downward spiral. and It's not only about sexuality. You you have to read that sometime. And I can understand that. I really understand that. I'm not of that world. I am not of this world anymore. The Lord Jesus has chosen me out of that world. And therefore, you know, not as much as I used to, because I'm not quite out in the public as much as I used to be when I was president. But this understanding that the world hates me. I'm not of the world. Oh, my goodness. I, I'm, I push back on almost everything I see in the world. Because it's a system that stands in opposition as a rebellion against Christ. And so he's just reminding them of that. This is really important to be reminded of this. And then he says in verse 20, Remember, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they hated me and treated me the way they treated me, don't expect them to love you and treat you nicely. They're going to treat you the same way they treat me. And I'm going to close with this. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they keep my word, if they, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Now I, I'm gonna have to stop there because it's 1246. But you see, Jesus now, these these wonderful, encouraging, comforting words of abiding in him, now is accompanied by warning. Because what he's gonna do to these guys, and what he does to us, Matthew 28, is he sends us into that world. He's our king a whole new kingdom with value, standards, and, and virtues that are in opposition to that rebellious kingdom of darkness, but he sends us into that. That's he's sending us into that way. He's going to send these guys into that. He sends us into that, and he wants to make sure that we understand what the reception is going to be like, and so it's, it's a reminder. I'm sending you into hostile territory, but abiding in me you will do what I'm asking you to do triumphantly. I'm I'm really sorry that I can't finish this paragraph today. We'll finish this. We'll pick up right away. I'll summarize verses 18 through 20, and we'll jump and finish the chapter and move into chapter 16, which is the last chapter of the Upper Room Discourse. So thanks for your good questions. I hope especially our, our discussion about the first 17 verses is a blessing this morning it's a tremendous passage of scripture for me personally and I hope it has been for you let me let me pray here for you men father we're grateful for our time around the word of God today this is a rich rich rewarding affirming comforting strengthening passage to study Lord you're calling on these men to be men who abide in you men who, who begin to understand and, and, and grasp what that means. It is another way of Jesus talking about the process of sanctification, to use the words of Paul, but that's really what he's talking about. It has tremendous results in our lives. It has characteristics which are absolutely mind-boggling, but that's the wonderful process of you conforming us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are privileged we, we are people that you have chosen, we're people that you've loved, we're people that have given us your, your word, and we are your friends. This is an amazing, an amazing characteristic, that we are the friends of God, the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, eternal, immutable, infinite God is our friend. That means the intimacy and vitality of our walk with you is so enriching, so empowering, but it's so comforting. And so we thank you for these grand truths which we've reviewed today. Be with these men and and we ask you to strengthen them, encourage them through the word of God and help them to grow into being and becoming the men of faith and men of God that you want them to be, that bring glory to you through their lives help them to see and to enjoy that level of intimacy with you so that we can in turn then represent you well, which is our prayer in Christ's precious name. Amen. All right, men, we'll see you next week. Thank you. Have
1: a good day.